Oh man, what an incredible trip that was. A lot of friendships made, formed, and just a really, really good time. Have we all. Uh, make sure if you haven't watched that full video, it is on the website, it is on YouTube, so you can check it out. And it is just, man, if it doesn't perfectly encapsulate everything that trip was, great job, Julia, well done. Um, but yeah, today, welcome to Southfield. My name is Brian. I am the student guy here at Southfield, and normally there are two bodies up here, but uh, Abbott lost his Costello because Costello had to go to Virginia and he was actually officiating Jared Beaker's wedding yesterday. And so they were out celebrating that. It's really, really exciting, really cool um, that he was able to be a part of that. And I saw my sister who went with them and apparently they're back, but he's knocked out dead asleep. So, because uh, that's, a, that's a long drive to make after you officiate a wedding, go to a, a reception and all that. So, for now, you just have me, sorry, tapping to the bullpen. And if you know anything about the bullpen, um, you know that sometimes it's great, sometimes it goes up in flames. So hopefully, today's one of those days that's great. I can't promise anything. Uh, but if you checked out your weekend update, you saw that there's a long list of announcements, some that have already passed. The first actually has to do with getting LifeWise gear. Hopefully you got that in before, uh, before last night because remember 100% of the proceeds all went to LifeWise Shanahan to help us get that program started and boosted as we enter the fall school season. It's right around the corner, uh, literally this week, uh, but LifeWise is starting a little after the, the school year starts. So you can still buy gear. Uh, we just get a prorated portion instead of 100%. And all that gear is actually being worn right now as our team heads out, our LifeWise team and, and others head out to march in the Shanahan Parade, uh, representing LifeWise and everything that's going to be happening with Shanahan School District and um, LifeWise working in conjunction with one another. So that's really cool. Um, the reason I bring up the parade is not to just say, hey, that's awesome. We actually have a baptism that's going to be happening after second service, so after the service, um, at the river. Normally, when you head out there, you usually will um, take one of the roads that gets you back to Fort Rivers Environmental Education Center, that area. Um, but they're all going to be blocked off because they use old Shanahan proper as the, the grounds for the parade. So if you want to go to the baptism and not run anybody over, you're going to have to go all the way up the hill, heading west on Route 6. You'll turn left at McKinley Woods and then essentially make a U-turn and loop back. So it's Hansel Road that turns into Bridge, you turn right on Blackberry and go back to Four Rivers. Uh, just make sure that if, if you're going to the baptism to celebrate today, don't, uh, don't panic when all, everything is blocked off for the, for the parade. You just got to go a little farther. But that'll be really cool to, to participate in after second service. Um, the rest of these announcements are all really, really good. But uh, I'm going to steal the thunder because I'm on my own. There are no rules. So I'm stealing the rest of the time for my students because... I hate to say it, summer's dead. Sorry, summer's gone. Uh, I know the weather's going to be here. We're still going to sweat through the end of this summer. And then second summer comes like at the beginning of October. So we'll sweat again. Uh, but so while the season or the weather's sticking around, the season is dead because school starts this week for a lot of us, next week for the rest of us. Uh, but while that can be a sad thing, waving goodbye to summer, there's so much cool stuff that happens in the fall. And the most important to the student guy would be that uh, students get fired up. So next week, next Sunday night from 6 to 8 p.m., Revive 
uh, with the high schoolers is going. So that's freshmen, sophomores, juniors, seniors. Anybody that's entering those grades this fall is welcome to come out, bring your friends, do whatever. We're going to have a, just a, a night to hang, get to know each other before we dive into our fall ministry season. So that's literally next Sunday. Revive starts off. And then the, the Wednesday of next week, uh, refuge kicks off. So that's our junior hires meeting from 6.30 to 8.30 here. We're going to pack the place. And I have to say this because we do grade centers in Shanahan and Manuka and other area schools. Junior high, as, as I went through it, was 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. So even though, sorry, like Three Rivers and whatever the medical school is called, um, if, if you go to school with sixth graders and a sixth grader says, hey, you should come to Refuge, it's not that we don't want you there. It's that you have to wait a year. So fifth graders, you got to hold off one year. Sixth, seventh, and eighth graders, though, more than welcome to come out and hang with us next Wednesday night from 6.30 to 8.30. And I'm getting to an age that I can fully admit I'm old. And uh, I'm looking around, and, and I'm starting to say things a little differently. I mean, I think part of that is lack of sleep with being a dad now and, and just, you know, general grumblings about taxes and weeds in the lawn and all this. I mean, it, so I'm, I'm saying all that, but I've, I've caught myself saying, you know, I remember when. And that's whenever I'm saying that now, I'm like, whoa, hold on, Gramps. Like, you're not that old, but... I remember when, I remember a time when you could call someone on the phone and you didn't have to use the area code and you were making that call usually on a phone that was attached to the wall. So I, I remember when that was a thing and around that time, around the year 2000, I, I had a rude awakening, uh, a rude, super rude awakening this, uh, yesterday. The song by Switchfoot called Meant to Live came out in 2003. That, I mean, so for those of you who were not alive, you're like, what are you talking about? Exactly, I get it, I'm old, whatever. But I saw that that song is now 20 years old and it made me want to cry because that, that I could still rock out to that song. Like it still has powerful meaning. It is still really, really cool. But I looked and I was like, oh, I remember when that song came out. It was like all I listened to. I'm, we're starting to have a, a little bit of a breakdown here, people. So I'm going to need some help getting through uh, getting through the morning. But another thing that I, that I want to um, talk about uh, over the next three weeks is, um, is the, the time that we can spend together as friends. So the, the reason I bring that up is because when you make a call to the bullpen, as I mentioned earlier, um, baseball decided that they have, after 150 years, they, they need new rules. Because, you know, if it ain't broke, fix it. So they decided that in order to speed up the game and make sure that teams like the Cardinals can't manipulate things and, and win title after title after title after title, we've got to break the system. So one of the ways that my Cardinals would perpetually break teams down and wear them out is by changing pitchers seemingly mid-at-bat. mid, mid at bat. So Tony LaRusso was the best at this. Uh, you'd take out the starter, put in a reliever, and then the next batter, they're switching pitchers again. And then the next batter, they're switching pitchers again. Just to kind of slow the game down and control the pace. Well, now, Major League Baseball, if you put in a new pitcher, they have to throw to at least three batters unless they finish the inning. And I know some of you are like, really, baseball? Boring. Shut your mouth. No, but it's important. It's important because this call to the bullpen today is not just a one-day thing. Uh, this call to the bullpen, I... According to baseball rules, I'm going to be with you for the next three weeks. So I'm going to be preaching on friendship because I know my, my dad talked with, uh, with the last series. 
that as you present messages and as you deliver sermons from the Word, oftentimes God will do things in your life that either give you a wake-up call or he puts you through exactly what you're preaching on. And so when I was told, hey, call the bullpen, you got three weeks, go. Like, I wasn't given a topic, I wasn't given instructions, direction, and I'm like, I don't know what to do. Um, but I, I know that I had to plan something out. And so what I, you know, my time praying and thinking about what the direction I was going to take for the next three weeks, something was impressed upon me, and I know that it wasn't just me. I know that it was God. Um, because I have a lot of, I think people will look at me, and because I'm the gregarious extrovert who will talk to everybody, I have a lot of people in my life who think I have a ton of friends. And I'm not saying that I don't. I do have a lot of really good friends. In fact, some of my, or one of my really, really good friends uh, came back and he's here in the room. I'm going to lunch with him today. Chad Kruger is back in the building today, which is, I'm so fired up to, to spend some time with, with him. Um, but generally speaking, when we talk friends, we misconstrue it with being friendly. Uh, if you're friendly, then you're friends. If you get along, then you're friends. So that's not true. That's not the definition of friendship. And this definition of friendship actually goes all the way back to to the Bible, to to God's perfect relationship that he has in the Trinity. So over the next three weeks, I actually am going to be doing a little bit of a self-examination of me and my friendships. The reason that I bring this up before we even get started today is because I don't want any of you thinking like, wait, are we not actually friends? Like, no, I'm not calling anybody out. I'm not up here to be like, you know what, Thad, we need to be close. No, I'm not, I'm not trying to do any of that. This is more God trying to teach me a lesson through uh, what we are going to be working through throughout this, um, throughout these next three weeks. In order to get us started, I'd like actually to go directly to communion this morning. And for communion here at Southfield, we get up and we walk as the music begins to play, and we've got four stations around the room. We've got two on tables here at the front, two on tables at the back, and we have three gluten-free stations, two that are on either end of the platform, and then one that's right back by that green beaming light of our camera. Uh, so you can go to whatever station you, you want to receive communion. But today I want you to think, before we even get started talking about friendship, I want you to think about the relationship that God had, that Jesus had, with the people that he was closest with while he was here on earth. The last thing that he did before he went to the garden and was betrayed was he spent time with his 12 closest friends eating dinner. Uh, again, this is not a call for you to invite me over for dinner, which I would love, I would gladly accept, because I love eating. Uh, but I, I really I want to point out what Jesus did in this moment. He knew that the time was short. He knew the betrayal was soon to come. He knew that he was going to die, that his time on earth, his earthly ministry, would come to a close before the 40 days of Pentecost and his return to heaven. And here's what he did. In Matthew 26, verse 26, it says, As they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples. He said, Take it and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and he said, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In his last moments with his friends, his 12 closest followers and friends, 
he decided not just to share a meal. He decided not just to have a sentimental moment. He decided not to reflect on all the good that they had done. He said, no, look forward. Look forward and remember, though, the relationship that we have had. Every time that we go to communion, we have the chance to remember the friendship that Jesus offers us. He literally laid down his life, and we're going to get into more of that in today's message. But while you go to receive communion this morning, I'm going to encourage you to grab the bread, grab the cup, and come back to your chair and just sit. Just sit and stare at the body and the blood that was poured out for you. Why? Out of love. Love that Jesus had for you, his friends. Let's go to communion. God, you are a good, good father. You are perfect in ways that we can't even imagine. And your perfection extends your love for us to a place where we can not only reach it, but we can grasp it and we can know it and we can understand it and we can love you back. We thank you so much for making us the way that you did and offering us the perfect relationship that you do. Even though we are far from perfect, you love us anyway. We thank you for giving us your word that we can dive into and know and get to, to know you better. I pray that you would open our minds, open our hearts this morning as we hear what you have to say for us. I pray this all in your name. Amen. Well, it kind of feels empty up, up on stage, even as uh, they were singing. You know, it might feel like kind of bare bones. We've got, as I've already said, we've got a lot of people in other states for weddings, and we've got the parade going on, and all this. I cannot forget to say this. Next week, we have an extended worship set, uh, which is going to be really, really cool. So the stage is going to be very full next week as we um, celebrate Ryan's uh, heading off to college. So uh, make sure that you are here for that. Make sure that you are uh, ready, to, ready to go. You won't even need coffee next week, I promise, because um, it's going to be just an amazing morning. But for now, we're going to start our series called Through Thick and Thin. And in the opening, I mentioned that I'm having a lot of moments of, you know, I remember when. Um, I remember when Brian Erlacher had or didn't have hair. Now he does. Um, so I'm old enough to remember when 54 was slick up top, and now he's got this full head of lettuce. I don't know how to feel about it, but uh, we're not talking about Brian Erlacher's hairline when we're talking about going through thick and thin. No, of course, um, we're, we're talking about friendship. And in order for this, I'm actually going to take a really weird start. So hang with me. Again, the bullpen, sometimes reliable, sometimes weird. Okay? Uh, for this, we actually, we're going to go a few years before Brian donned the famous number 54 for the Bears. Which, speaking of the Bears, sidetrack, Justin Fields. How good is he? Okay. Um, to learn about what happened uh, about a thousand years after Jesus was on earth, we are going to go to something called the Bayou Tapestry. The Bayou Tapestry uh, tells the story of a period in English history known as the Anglo-Saxon period. It's kind of mixed in with the beginning of the medieval ages and the, the Dark Ages. The Dark Ages are called the Dark Ages not because there was no sun, but because there wasn't much written history because they didn't have a written language. Uh, therefore, we get the Bayou Tapestry. That's a puzzle of it up above, but down below you can see it's, it's stretched out. It's 20 inches tall by 230 feet long, and it's divided up into 58 scenes that tell the story of this uh, Anglo-Saxon period leading up to 
something called the Battle of Hastings. Now, why the heck would I go this route? Why am I telling you about uh, tapestry and Anglo-Saxon England and I thought this was church? Yeah, I get it. Uh, but we have to go back here because it's a really, really important part in, in history. And I'm not standing in front of a civics class. that I'm, I'm super fired up. I'm actually teaching this uh, in the coming weeks in my civics class because it lays the foundation for America and language and Christianity. And all. Like, there's all kinds of stuff that's mixed in here. Rant aside... Something came out of this time. At the end of the Bayou Tapestry, we see one scene depicting um, William, the Duke of Normandy, being promised the kingship by the current king of England, known as Edward the Confessor, who had no, he had no children, so he didn't have an heir to the throne, so he was choosing who would follow him as king. He chooses William. However, in Edward's final days, he pivots. As all good leaders do, right before they're about to leave, they say, ah, never mind, here, go. And uh, as Edward uh, not so wisely did, he chose a family friend, a rich noble by the name of Harold Godwinson. Harold Godwinson, uh, well, he didn't last longer than just the year 1066. Why? Because William, feeling scorned, uh, gathers up an army of supporters and leaves what is now France, heads across the English Channel, and takes on Harold Godwinson and wins fairly easily because of some key errors that Harold made. Um, and the very last scene of the Bayou Tapestry is a depiction of the end of Harold's days and King William now being crowned King of England on Christmas Day of 1066. Again, weird place to start. But it's out of this time area, that moment, the Battle of Hastings and the beginning of, of William's reign, that we start to form what is now what we call the English language. Old English was kind of being formed throughout this time, and, and after this, we get, the, we get Middle English. Middle English, we're starting to get the, the kind of picture of what uh, the, the words we use and the, the, all the rules and everything— Middle English is a Germanic language. It's mixed with a little Latin. It's mixed with a little French. It's mixed with a little Norse, among some other things. It's really, really hard to read. Uh, it's not just fancifully written. But uh, it's out of this that Christianity starts to, we start to get the messages written down and they're able to be spread. We're still a long way from the printing press, but uh, the, the word is starting to get out. So it's really, really important. Our, our modern English, the English we speak today, with all of its crazy rules, starts to take root during this time. And one grammatical invention that occurred at this point is the idiom. The idiom is used to add variety to, or color to speech or to writing. They can also be used to emphasize a point, or make a statement more memorable. Idioms are often derived from pop culture, like movies or books or songs, but they're not meant to be taken literally. For example, the phrase, I'm not going to sugarcoat it, actually comes from uh, The Catcher in the Rye, the book The Catcher in the Rye. Idioms can also be formed around historical events. For example, it's all downhill from here is actually based on the Battle of Bunker Hill, where the American colonists were defeated in battle and had to retreat down the hill, but they proved their resolve and that they would not reconcile with England and proved that they could actually hold their own against a far superior British army. To have a chip on your shoulder is not... To be taken literally, like, oh, I fell asleep on the couch watching something on TV, and now I've got Pringle dust all over my shoulder? No. Instead, to have a chip on your shoulder literally meant that you would take a, a wood chip, you'd set it on your shoulder, and you'd stare somebody down if you wanted to duel. 
I say that hesitantly with junior hires and high schoolers in the room because I can like almost see they're going to be grabbing wood chips later, staying in the parking lot. Just so if it looks weird, it's my fault. No, um, other examples of idioms include raining cats and dogs, it's a piece of cake, break a leg, feeling under the weather, and killing two birds with one stone. So now you've gotten a little history, you've gotten a little English, where are we going? Well, now we can get started, because through thick and thin is actually an idiom. It's an idiom that comes from Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. When entering a dark forest, in some places the trees are thick and overgrown and hard to navigate, while others, other places in the forest, will be thin and sparse and easy to move around and easy to find your way. This would have been very relatable to the people of the times because the majority of England at that point was woods. So they, they would have understood it, but they also would have known it's not literally being, or it's not meant to be taken literally. If you're going to follow someone through the woods to either go on a quest or help them accomplish something, it's not going to be an easy task. You have to be dedicated. You can ask Chad Uphoff, Bob Coyne, Miranda Gearman, Julie Conroy, or anybody else that's golfed with me as I load up and I send errant drives into the woods. Going through the thicket to find your ball is, uh, brings about some risks. Risks of back injuries, poison ivy rashes, gashes from thorns, and faces full of cobwebs. Someone who helps you search for and find your ball in the woods, they're a real one. That's a real friend because they're literally willing to go through thick, and thin, maybe even up into a tree. I have so many questions about this guy up in the tree. Why are you wearing flip-flops? Uh, anyway. But they're willing to go through thick and thin to help you accomplish your goal. As humans, we love fe feeling supported by our friends. Each of us feels supported in different ways, and we may even express that appreciation for that support differently. But we all innately desire support and encouragement from friends. Why? Because that's how God designed us. I think the world has done a good job of ruining the meaning of friendship and because today someone is your friend if you share a cube with them or if you share Facebook profiles with each other. They're your friend. Other platforms like Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, they've done away with the word friend altogether. They saw the mess that MySpace made. Yes, I'm old enough to remember MySpace where you had to pick a top eight. You want to talk sweat? Holy cow. Um, but Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, they don't call them friends anymore. They're followers. We're going to get into that next week. Uh, but don't roll your eyes just yet because it's not just an indictment on social media. The goal of this series is far more important. Using the Bible as our guide, we're going to study Friendship 101. What makes a friend and why do biblical friendships matter? So over the next three weeks, we're going to look at how to start, cultivate, and keep those kinds of friendships. It's important to investigate this because even for the most gregarious extrovert, spending time with or pouring into friends has become increasingly difficult in the year 2023. Why? There's a litany of reasons. I could list them all on the, on the screen for you, but I'll just go through a couple. One, we make the excuse of being busy and tired. I know because I've, again, as I get older, I have to write things down or they don't happen. So my calendar's full of all kinds of pretty colors from school and church and home and Emmett. And I don't know what any of them mean, but it's all there. And uh, so I can see that I've got a lot of things to do, a lot of places to be, a lot of things to get done. And uh, what do I have left for my friends? Well, the, the five minutes that I have before I fall asleep. We constantly give our friends the end of our day, the end of our rope when we're most tired. Social media also gives us the perception that we already know everything that's going on in their lives. So why ask? Why give a friend a phone call? 
Why send that text message when I can just look at their Instagram or I can read their Facebook and know exactly what they did today? There's no need for that close friendship. I'm a friend because I see what they're doing. But that's not it at all. And finally, our phones. Don't get me wrong. I love my iPhone. One of my favorite features is when somebody sends you a text, if you want, you don't even have to respond to words. You can press your thumb down on that message and up pops like six different options for you just to react to the message. You can thumbs up, thumbs down it. You can double exclamation points it. You can heart it. You can laugh at it. Ha ha. You can do whatever you want. You don't even have to use words. And you know what? That's really, really frustrating for a fantasy football commissioner such as myself when I send a message that says, here are six options for drafting people. Which one works best? And then the first five people that respond just heart the thing. If any of you are watching, I need a response. I'm sorry. Okay. If we're to follow God's instruction like he desires us to, we cannot afford to keep everyone at arm's length. We cannot afford to just give our friends the last bit of our energy or the smallest amount of our time. We cannot afford to just assume that social media is a good connection for friendship. That's all we need. And quite simply, we, we can't receive text messages or, or things and, and just respond with a reaction and think that it's all going to be okay. No. If we're going to follow God's instructions, we need to know that friendship matters. It matters to God. Life on life, old school, through thick and thin, friendship matters to God. Why? As I said before, God designed us for it. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, it's a passage that's very familiar around here. Um, it says this, God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock of all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This plural language here does not imply that we have multiple gods. No. In fact, this word actually gives us the foundation for our Christian belief that we're looking at a Trinity, a triune God, three in one. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Just like God is in relationship within the Trinity, God designed us in his image, with his stamp, to be in relationship with one another. Furthermore, having the image or likeness of God means in the simplest terms that we're made to resemble God. The image of God refers to the immaterial part of our humanity. It sets human beings apart from the animal kingdom. It fits us for dominion over the animal kingdom, in fact, as God intended us to have over the earth, and it enables us to commune with our maker. I love the way that GodQuestions.org puts this. Being made in the image of God, it says, implies three distinct um, ways. Mentally, morally, and socially. And here's how they put it. Mentally, humanity was created as a rational, volitional agent. In other words, human beings can, be, can reason and they can choose. This reflects God's intellect and freedom. Anytime someone invents a machine, writes a book, paints a landscape, enjoys a symphony, calculates a sum, or names a pet, he or she is proclaiming the fact that we are made in God's image. Morally, humanity was created in righteousness and perfect innocence, a reflection of God's holiness. God saw all he had, all he had made, humanity included, and called it very good. Our conscious or our moral compass is a vestige of that original state. Whenever someone writes a law, recoils from evil, praises good behavior, or feels guilty, 
he or she is confirming the fact that we are made in God's own image. Finally, socially, humanity was created for fellowship. This reflects God's triune nature and his love. In Eden, humanity's primary relationship was with God, and God made the first woman because, as the Bible says, it is not good for the man to be alone. Every time someone marries, makes a friend, hugs a child, or attends church, he or she is demonstrating the fact that we are made in the likeness of God. We know from having hashed out the first two chapters of Genesis around here before that God repeatedly says his creations are good. And then the next day, it's good. Next day, good. Next day, good. The only time that he expressly says something is not good is when he sees man alone. So in Genesis 2.24, we see the, the culmination of God taking one of Adam's ribs, creating woman, creating Eve. They become one flesh. Becoming one flesh simply it implies the need, the simple need for one another. There are things that man brings to the relationship that the, that the woman needs and vice versa. Without Riley, who is my undisputed number one best friend in the world, I would be in shambles. She'd have less humor in her life, but I think she'd be okay. Uh, I would be like a car that's not quite getting all that it needs. I've, I've had quite a, a few fun car stories in my life. I've, I've driven some interesting vehicles. My very first car was a Mitsubishi Galant, and I wrecked that by crashing into the back of a Pontiac Bonneville. The Bonneville's a little bit bigger than that Galant, so while there was literally no, I had a red Galant, there was not even a paint scratch on the Bonneville, my Galant was totaled. So I had to earn up some money and buy a new car, and the only one that I could afford after working at Budget Golf for seemingly uh, a year was a 1997 GMC Jimmy that had 220,000 miles on it when I bought it. Now, old cars require, all cars, all cars, new drivers, all cars require maintenance. Old cars require extra special maintenance. And I was not giving that love that that car needed to that vehicle. Um, so it might not have been getting regular oil changes, but it had two 12-inch subs in the back that could rattle the back hatch open. That's what matters in high school. Um, so one day, I'm actually driving home from JJC with my buddy in the front seat, and uh, we're coming home from baseball. And I said, you, you smell that? Something smells funny. He's like, no, nothing smells weird. Driving about another half mile, and I'm on Route 6, like passing the police station. Are you sure? Like, is there, there might be a bonfire or something going on. He's like, you're crazy. Nothing's wrong. Just get us home. We get to where New Casey's is. And that's when my car decided to lock up and say, I'm done. Poof! Burst into black smoke. And I was able to wrench the wheel just enough to slide, to literally glide into the, the parking lot of that hardware store that's right next to um, old Casey's now. And uh, that was the end of that. I didn't give that car what it needed. I didn't give it regular oil changes like an idiot. Okay? I admit my mistakes. Uh, I also drove a 1992 Mitsubishi Mirage. This is actually uh, the car that Riley knew me uh, when we started our relationship. I think that she's only with me because that car had automatic seatbelts. It would come up for you. It was pretty sweet, if I may say so myself, but it didn't have cruise control, didn't have air conditioning. And as I discovered, it had a hole in the gas tank because I put gas in one day and it only had like an eight-gallon tank, okay? But I go inside to get some candy like I always do. I come back out. I'm all happy, eating my now and laters or whatever I got. <laughs> and I see gas all over the ground. And I'm like, what? It, and it's by my car, but I'm like, what idiot would spill all this gas on the ground? Like, that's dangerous. Somebody should clean that up. And I get to the pump, and I look, it's still going. 
15 gallons, 16 gallons. I'm like, what? And then I look down and I see that it's pouring out of the gas tank that had a hole in the top of it. Now, it's not that I wasn't giving the gas, or I wasn't giving the car what it needed. It needed gas, and I was making sure to do oil changes. Uh, but I didn't clearly make sure that uh, all the parts were up to snuff. All of this is still not as bad as my friend Matt. My friend Matt, when we were in college, um, he had an old farm truck and a diesel truck. And when we were in college, it was like the financial crisis, right? So gas was over four dollars, which they promised us we'd never reach again. Um, gas is over $4. We're already paying for school. We're broke. And my friend Matt made a really bad mistake. He drove down to get a Polar Pop at Thornton's and, uh, or Circle K, whatever. And he's coming, or he's, he needed to get gas. So he's like, hmm, I think that if I put E85 in my diesel truck, not only will I save money, but I'm supporting farmers because ethanol, right? So he fills up the diesel gas tank with E85, and if you don't know anything about diesel, it's, it's like oil. It's more oil than, than like normal gas. That's why they literally put it on the opposite side. There's a separate handle. It's bigger. It's a bigger nozzle, so you can't fit it in your car even by mistake, and it's always a mess. E85 is much cleaner, and uh, that truck made it two blocks before, boom, it burst into smoke and died a very quick death. Needless to say, through these three car stories, I hope you understand, if you don't give a car what it needs, it will quit on you. It will no longer say, or it will no longer do the driving. It says, okay, fine. You don't want to feed me. You don't want to take care of me. I'm dead. It's the same with us. If we don't, as God designed us, build into the things that he designed us for, we are going to break down. We are going to face troubles and hardships in ways that we weren't meant to. Certain needs God implanted in us, like food, the need for food, the need for water, sleep, warmth, all those things. We wouldn't even think about going a single day without those things. But then there are needs like friends that we often neglect. Ecclesiastes 4 proves this. It says two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either one of them falls down, one can the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves, and a cord of three strands is not easily broken. This same passage in the Christian Standard Bible uh, changes that, that word um, to, or that changes the word companion, changes to the word companion during the fall down stand up part. So it says, for if either falls, his companion can lift him up. And that companion can be translated as an associate, a partner, um, someone to be united with, or simply a friend. This is a literal glimpse into what it means to be friends in the thick of things. No man left behind. And our culture values that, no man left behind. But our culture also values toughing it out. Rugged individualism. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps and get it going. But always running alone is not a useful or successful strategy more often than not. I'm testament to this. I'm the head coach of the Shannon Junior High cross country team, and I planned as soon as the school year was done, with all the endless free time I had in the summer, I was going to come back in the greatest shape of my life, and I was going to be able to lead the pack and show them where to go, and I was going to be just like purebred marathon runner, ready to coach my kids on how to do it the right way. But the problem is, as I told them, I caught a case of lazy knees over summer. Lazy knees is where you prop your feet up on the table watching TV and you eat as many Cheetos in two months as you can. Um, the reason that I did that wasn't because I couldn't go running. 
It's because I didn't have someone holding me accountable. I had Riley saying, hey, weren't you going to run this summer? But then I just, yeah, continue eating Cheetos. God designed us for partnering together, for having someone to hold us accountable, for having people in our lives that we can depend on and for them to be able to depend on us. So why else does friendship matter? Not just because he designed us for it, but because Jesus demonstrated it. In Matthew 10, we see a list of Jesus' closest friends, his disciples. It says he called, them, or he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Jesus didn't pick friends based on who he thought was most popular or impressive. He didn't choose people based on who could do things for him like a lot of people do today. He didn't look around and say, hey, you know, Matthew's got this government connections that can maybe help me skate on my taxes. James and John, they've got that new speedboat with the fish finder. And Thomas, well, Thomas... He makes really good bagels that are still on sale at Jewel today. No, no. Who did Jesus choose? An eclectic lot of guys who came from all different backgrounds, different skills, and certainly different personalities. The bottom line is Jesus never went it alone. Even in prayer, he wasn't alone. When Jesus was tested in the wilderness for 40 days in Matthew chapter 4, the Bible tells us that he was first led there by the Spirit. During that time, he was able, or while being tempted by the devil, he's able to resist not because he was the most disciplined person on earth, which he literally was, but because he wasn't alone. The word was in him, the spirit was with him, and God was watching over him. He could confidently thwart Satan's plan because he came from heaven, where he had a perfect relationship with the Father and the Spirit, and he didn't give up on it. In his ministry, he simply continued living in proximity with people the same way that he had with the Trinity during his time in heaven. It's also important to point out here that Jesus knew his time on earth would be short. He starts his ministry at age 30 and doesn't look around and have the mentality of, oh, I just have no time. You know, it's just easier if I do this myself. You know, you guys are nice, but uh, I'm going to be the head honcho and you just follow my lead. No. Instead, he looked for friends that would follow him through the thick and the thin times in his life. He sought friendship, relationship, and community to be a model for us, the model of the, per the perfect relationship he has in the Trinity. Furthermore, while Jesus sought out friends for support, he didn't get an equal share of closeness with each of them. And that's okay. If he had, Judas's role might have looked a little different. Instead, we read that Jesus had an especially close relationship with three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John. Matthew 17, the Bible says Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, led him up through a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And what an amazing moment. Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the clouds said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fall on their faces and they're terrified. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Rise, have no fear. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. 
As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one of the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. This is a thin experience for Jesus on earth. This is an amazing moment that he gets to share with three of his closest friends, the transfiguration. Jesus is literally glowing as God speaks from heaven while Moses and Elijah, stalwarts of the faith, are talking in the background. Jesus didn't do this for clout. He did it for relationship. This is like Jesus pulling out his driver on a 600-yard par 5 and just ripping one right down the middle and it lands on the green. And he says, put a plaque in the... Put a plaque in the clubhouse with my name on it for the longest drive. No, this isn't actually anything like that. This is like Jesus pulling out his sand wedge on that 600-yard par 5, whacking one, having it hit 12 trees, maybe a goose, rolling through the sand, in and out of the water, and going in the hole for a 600-yard hole-in-one, and then saying, hey, guys, don't tell anyone what just happened. Does that show trust in these relationships that he has, or what? Does that show a closeness? I mean, if that happened, it would be impossible to contain that great news. It would be impossible to hold that in. But Jesus, through his close relationship with his friends, says, wait. And they do. Later in Matthew 26, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane before his death. And who did he have with him? Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John. Here, It says, Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled, and he tells them, my soul is very sorrowful. Even to death, remain here and watch with me. These guys fail immediately. Twice, they fall asleep. He says, stay up, wait with me. And twice, Jesus has to come back and wake them up and say, really? Are you kidding? Jesus doesn't turn his back on them. He doesn't say, you know what? You guys just go home. I'm going to do the rest of this myself. No, no, he stays with them. And in fact, when Judas leads the high priests and the soldiers to come arrest Jesus, Jesus tells Judas, friend, do what you came to do. What a gut-wrenching moment for Judas to hear Jesus utter that word, that meaningful word, friend, do what you came to do. And even after that, Jesus doesn't back down from the plan that, laid out, that was laid out for him in the hours ahead. In my opinion, it would have been very easy to, based on how many people let him down in his moments of need, but he refused to give up on his dedication to his friends, both there with him and his friends that he would be in relationship with today, you and me. So that leads us to the final reason why friendship matters and that Jesus died for it. From the very beginning of his earthly ministry, Jesus was able to clearly define his mission. And in Luke chapter 5, Jesus begins calling his disciples. He says, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. He said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and scribes grumbled at this, at the disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answers them, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus chose to befriend and ultimately die for sinners in need of repentance. That's you and that's me. We aren't deserving of such a good friend. If we analyze the amount of times that we scorned Jesus and let him down, we would be justifiably terrible friends. And yet, around here we sing a, a song that I hope is on the list for next week. I haven't checked, but I hope it is. It's called Graves into Gardens. And uh, in that 
there's a verse that I'm not going to sing for you because I don't want all of you to run out. Um, it says, I'm not afraid to show you my weakness, my failures and flaws. Lord, you've seen them all. And you still call me friend. Friend. There's nothing that we can do where Jesus will say, that's it, I'm done with you. No, this is Jesus. This is who he is. He's a friend of sinners, and out of love, he laid down his life for us. In John 15, as we come to the end, it says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And just as I have kept my Father's commandments, abide in his love. So again, there's that demonstration that we are to follow. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you, and no longer do I call you servants. For the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you. So that, he, that you will love one another. Love one another. It's a command, but it's also a choice. Love requires action. And Jesus took his, not only by demonstrating it, designing us for it, demonstrating it for us, and dying for it, for us. Jesus took his action, but now it's time for us. It's time for us to follow that example. So moving forward this week, I have three questions that you can begin to ask yourself that can help you start taking action in your friendships. First, most importantly, do you know Jesus as a friend? Have you come to that point in your life where you're willing to say, I can't do this on my own? Have you come to that point in your life where you realize, yes, not only is God real, but he designed me, and he designed me for a relationship with him that will last for eternity beyond our time here? Have you admitted that you've sinned? that the only way that sin can be wiped away is through a relationship with Jesus who died on the cross for those sins. And then you change your way. Will you still screw up? Yes, but you change your way to live in honoring him and honoring that sacrifice. And again, if, if you're still sitting here thinking, I'm such a bad sinner that God could never want me, then you haven't been listening. You're like one of my seventh grade social studies students and you need to wake up. There is nothing that you can do that Jesus we'll say, I'm done with you. I'll say it again and again and again throughout the series. Nothing, nothing, nothing that you can do. And Jesus will say, I'm done. Second, are you connected at Southfield? Sorry. Uh, we have journey groups that are going to be opening up here in the fall. We have serving opportunities. You can even spend time here in the building before you run out. Now it's a weird Sunday because we literally had people run out after first service to go to the parade and we've got people running around the country for weddings and all this kind of stuff. But are you willing to stay a couple minutes to turn to the person that you've been sitting next to all service or maybe talk to the people that have been taking care of your kids or maybe um, you know, linger just for a few minutes to maybe spark up a friendship? Are you willing to make the ask? Jesus could have lived in solitude, but he didn't. It would have been a lot easier for him not to sin if, nobody, if no sin was around him, right? But he chose to make thick and thin friends. So we need to do the same. Get connected here. Finally, will you go to God in prayer? This week, will you pray about friendships specifically? Will you go to God in thanks for the way he designed you? 
that Jesus, is, that he modeled that friendship for you and that he died for you? Will you go to him thanking him for the friends of your past? Will you go to him in humble request that maybe a broken relationship can be mended or an old friendship can be renewed? Can you go to him asking for help, trusting a friend again, or prioritizing friendship like you haven't been or like I know I haven't been at times? Will you go to God in prayer, in earnest prayer, believing in the power of speaking with our God? Those are three things that you can do, three questions you can ask this week to begin moving towards biblical friendships. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus is a friend of sinners. Thank you for sending him to die in our place so that we can have relationship with you, unending relationship with you. Thank you, God, for friendships. And although there are tons of challenges, obstacles, problems that pop up, I pray for us, the people of Southfield, that we would continue to pursue thick and thin friendships. Friendships that last, not just in the good times, but also through the hard, through the difficult, through the challenging. As we pray this week to you about friendships, my hope, my prayer, my request for us is that you'd help us to grow in the areas that each of us needs most. Whether that's finally coming into relationship with you, whether that's getting connected here at Southfield, or coming to you in prayer fervently and earnestly about uh, the people in our lives who we call friends. pray this all in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. And before I send you off, just a reminder, next week, full stage, big worship set. It's going to be really, really cool. We'll get part two of this series. Be praying this week. And honestly, guys, we got the doors open. Hang around. Make a friend. Have a great week.